Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with me today a very special guest, Dr. Nancy Smith. Uh, Nancy has kind of taken me under her wing and showed me all things grant writing and service-based learning. And I'm excited because it's not very often I get to geek out about stuff like this. Uh, there's very few people that uh, actually understand service-based learning and are as excited about it as, as we are. So, Nancy, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. Tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it's led you to where you're at today. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast today. Uh, my academic journey started out, I started out actually as a clinician and I had a student um, recommend me for an academic uh, teaching appointment. And um, I was in as a clinical instructor and the DCE came to me and said, well, we happen to have a academic um, appointment as an adjunct professor. Would you be interested? And so I started out as an adjunct professor and I started out actually teaching cardiovascular and pulmonary, um, which was the topic that nobody in the department wanted to teach and um, had experience in that area because I was working in a largely uh, geriatric setting with people who were post-surgical and working in the acute care setting. After a couple of years of doing that, I transitioned to into full-time academic roles and then was started becoming the supervisor of our pro bono clinic. I've been our supervisor of our pro bono clinic since uh, about 2012. And I've been in academia since 2010 full time. And during that time, I've hold a, held a lot of different roles and um, done a lot of different things in the space around um, service-based learning and around um, community-engaged scholarship. So I've really enjoyed my time doing that because I, and I felt like um, it's a needed area of scholarship that we really need because we really need to engage ourselves with the communities around us. And we really need to understand what's going on in the communities around us in order to do that. My journey in academia um, is pretty typical of a lot of people that are starting out in academia, um, starting out as an adjunct professor, and then um, having to um, go about gaining additional um, experience and also gaining additional certification. So during my time as a faculty member, I've become certified as a geriatric specialist, and I've also completed a PhD um, during my time as a 
uh, faculty member. So I did not start out writing grants. I will say that. And I did not start out as um, intending on doing community-based and community-engaged scholarship. Um, But my journey kind of just led me here. And I would say, like I said, I did start out in directing our community-based pro bono clinic, but we've evolved since then. And we have grants through um, United Way and also through AHRQ looking at community-based falls prevention, looking at how we work with our community and preventing falls and working, looking at how we also promote um, healthy aging in place and healthy aging in our communities. Yeah, I love that. I see so many parallels in my career and and where you're at. I'm just kind of getting started in academia, haven't really published anything yet, haven't written any grants yet. Uh, wasn't really too, too interested in the community-based learning stuff. You know, service-based learning was my dissertation, but didn't think I was going to apply that as directly as I am now having to apply it. Um, And geriatrics, same thing. I'm working on a board certification for that uh, and becoming, you know, certified in a couple other areas uh, within the geriatric realm to kind of help with falls prevention. So it's becoming a a new research agenda direction for me a little bit there. But uh, let's start out by just giving the the baseline here, what what is your definition of service-based learning? So the audience has a, a point of reference. So my definition, I, I will go from two sides here. I'm going to go from the community side and I'm going to go from the student side. So let's start a little bit from the community side. From a community side, we use asset-based models. So for those um, not familiar with asset-based models, we engage our community. They tell us what they need not the other way around. And that's really important for communities of color who we serve um, because it allows them to engage us with them. It lets them tell us where the needs are and also allows them to direct us in what they feel like is most important for them. So for example, Um, I have been working with um, community leaders in different areas of our local community. We're situated in East Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is a community that is medically underserved. And I've been working with the community organizers and community leaders in the local communities. And they call me on a regular basis and say, hey, this resident or this person needs services over here. And can you provide services to this person? We also work with community agencies. So for services that we cannot provide, they help us extend the service reach that we have. So for example, we work with an organization called Shepherd Center and they help us provide um, services by installing grab bars into um, people's homes or helping to upfit people's decks or upfit with ramps. We can't do that. We don't have the capacity to do that, but they do. And so because they have that capacity, we allow them to to exercise that capacity. And I would say also too, for us, for service learning, it's um, thinking about what resources already exist and building good partnerships. So we have been in partnership with um, our pro bono clinic. We're in partnership with a large free clinic in North Carolina, the Community Care Center of Forsyth County. They um, are one of the largest pro bono clinics in the country, and we are in partnership with them, and we have been since 2008, and we are their providers of physical and occupational therapy services. 
they had a clinic, they had space, they do our scheduling for us. And so it's a mutually beneficial partnership. It benefits their patients, allows them to provide services that they would not otherwise be able to provide. And it allows our students an opportunity to learn and serve. Thinking about it from a student's facing side, our WSSU motto is enter to learn, depart to serve. And that is instilled within our classes um, from the time students enter our program second semester, they start serving in our pro bono clinics. We felt like that was really important for us as a faculty to start getting students into the clinics early and often. We also felt like the reflective piece that goes into service learning was really important, that students were able to reflect on the impacts that they were having, and that also students were able to exercise their social responsibility responsibly. That being said, any initiative that we start, we try to ensure that it's sustainable and that we um, make sure that when we're working with these communities that anything we initiate, we are able to sustain for a long period of time so that services are not just provided for a day, services are not just provided for a month, that they're provided on an ongoing basis. And that allows our communities to depend on us and to rely on us and to know that services will be there no matter what happens. And I think that's important for students to see because that's part of our um, core values of social responsibility as a profession. And I think, you know, as we are trying to instill social responsibility as a profession, it allows students to see, hey, I'm part of that social responsibility. The other thing we have um, students reflect on when they reflect on is how um, health equity is not equitable for everyone. And so how we see health inequity in society and what their part is to ameliorate health equities and equities within society and make health more equitable for everyone. And so I mentioned we have our pro bono clinic that runs out of the community care center of Forsyth, but we are um, also partnering with United Way running a pop-up clinic on Monday afternoons. It's on the bus line and it serves patients with MS and it also serves patients who have um, neurologic conditions and it runs every um, Monday afternoon. And we see patients for free at that clinic as well. And then students are also um, running Otago classes and um, working with our Moving for Better Balance and classes that we run um, through our senior centers. So we also serve rural areas in our community. So we have um, rural areas that are close to Winston-Salem, but just don't have good access. And if they were to have to get access to a um, preventative balls and balance class, it would be an over an hour drive for them. So we do provide classes both virtually and in person for uh, falls prevention. So I think from a service learning perspective, students see the continuum of care from prevention and wellness through thinking about um, ameliorating um, conditions. And also too, from thinking about once people have thinking about the prevention and wellness continuum, thinking about even secondary and tertiary prevention, and then, you know, thinking about the reflective component that happens with service learning, they're assigned to do reflective assignments, both um, from a written standpoint. They also have a project that they do in their um, neurological conditions class that involves them interviewing a patient and talking about the impacts that these clinics have on their um, abilities to um, function within society. And that's um, the movie 
project. And they actually create a short film um, that's um, about their service in the community and um, the impacts that that they might have had with um, particular clients in the community. Yeah, I love that. I mean, for me, community service was just something I kind of always did. My parents had had brought us up doing, you know, volunteerism and, and stuff like that. So it was important for me to try to show my kids that, you know, this is important. This is why we do it. And so it was important for me to incorporate that into my work life too. And I wasn't really sure how to go about doing that. So when I started my dissertation, I said, well, to me, service-based learning is a perfect fit for physical therapy because I personally learn better in the clinic on my clinical rotations and and through experiential learning. That's the best learning experiences that I had. Now, you know, granted, everybody's not the same, but it made sense. It was a perfect fit because I could teach you about the Berg balance scale in class on a, on a PowerPoint and show you how to do it. Or we could do a balance and fall screening out in the community using the Berg balance scale. I could teach you the Berg balance scale there. And then we could also help and benefit the community by doing that screening to help maybe identify a couple of people that could be potential fallers. Right. And, and so it, it seemed like such a great fit. And yet when I looked at it and I did the research, only 50% of PT schools at the time of my dissertation were using some form of service-based learning. And it was a little unclear if maybe they just weren't calling it that or, you know, uh, it wasn't really true service-based learning. But, you know, it was interesting to me that 100% of programs weren't using it, you know. So I thought maybe there was some sort of intrinsic characteristics maybe that maybe prevented us from doing it. Basically, my dissertation showed that was not the case. Everybody's for pro bono work and and service-based learning. And uh, then, all right, well, then the next question is, then why aren't we doing it, right? So I think that's some more stuff that we have to dig into as far as the barriers and stuff go, right? But as far as the Physical Therapy Practice Act, right, like that's one of our goals, our obligations is to do, uh, you know, pro bono work when we can. You know, we're supposed to provide for people that don't have access uh you know, whether it be for financial reasons or, you know, lack of ability or services or, you know, a disaster, we're supposed to be there in those times. So I think it's it's a great model for students to see and then carry on with, you know, after the fact. How did you get started in coming up with this program and like piecing it all together, especially let's start maybe from the grant side of things. Like how, how did you come to the point where you were like, hey, I think we're going to need a grant for this. This is how I'm going to put it together. From the grant side of things, we kept saying, hey, we need this equipment. Hey, we need this for our clinic. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if I'm not a hey, I'm not really good with hey, what ifs. I'm like, let's fix this problem. So people receiving pro bono care should have the same quality of care as people who are receiving care who are paying for it or who insurance is paying for it. We should be receiving the same quality of care that was my first initiation of, hey, we need to find some grants. So we started actually in our pro bono clinic looking for some foundation grants. And we first partnered with Islamic Relief to fund some grants for us. And they very graciously funded some grants, which helped us provide some additional staffing resources and also helped us provide some equipment resources for our clinic. And one thing that um, I would encourage individuals to do is really look on the foundation funding side, because there are foundations that will fund full direct client service grants, meaning that they will fund equipment that goes directly to clients and that will fund clinic operations side grants. 
Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, for example, will fund grants like that. Um, United Way um, in our local community funds grants like this. And so we started looking for grants um, that would fund our operations because we needed TheraBand, we needed electrodes, we needed just things that massage cream. Um, and we also needed to be able to provide equipment to our, our clients. So we needed to be able to provide crutches and walkers and canes and, and just various things that clients need because they um, have mobility impairments and we need to be able to provide them something to help them with their mobility impairments. That was kind of where we started. And then just based upon my experience in geriatrics, looking at people who um, were institutionalized um, and people who were not. And thinking about my experiences in working in under-resourced facilities and, and patients who didn't have a lot of financial resources, a lot of times patients who ended up in facilities, they ended up there because their homes were accessible to them, or they ended up there because they just didn't have the financial resources to make modifications to their homes, or they didn't have caregiver support. So I started thinking about what we could do in our local community to address those issues. And so there were a team, there was a team of us that came together around this. And we sat down with our rehabilitation counseling department in our OT department, in our PT department. So this was interprofessional. And we always think about um, these grants as interprofessional opportunities. And, and the reason is, is that we all bring opportunities for our students to collaborate together and to also think about how each one of, of our professions may contribute to the care of the patient. We really wanted to pull in our OT colleagues because they might have some good insights in how to make homes more accessible. Um, they might have some good insights on the different occupations that people might participate in during the day. And so it's not just a PT enterprise, it's, it's an interprofessional enterprise. And, and we also wanted to make sure that our students could collaborate. So in all of these grants, we're thinking about collaboration. Um, actually, our IRUSA, our um, Islamic Relief Grant, helped um, get occupational therapy started in our pro bono clinic. So there, um, there's actually only two um, pro bono clinics in the entire U.S. for occupational therapy. We have one. Just kind of thinking about how we did that from this genesis of this kind of sitting down thinking about what do people need? We said people need the ability to age in place successfully, to not fall, to prevent injury, and to be safe as they age. We also thought about what structural barriers there were to people being able to do that. So some of the things we identified were people don't always have financial resources to do that, to age successfully in place. So we partnered with Habitat for Humanity, and Habitat does some of the home repairs that people need to be able to stay successfully in their homes. And they also do some home modification, for example, widening doors. It's really hard when your, your home was built in the 1940s and your door is 24 inches wide to get a wheelchair through that door. So we thought about those factors as well. We actually wrote in our grant to have an equipment closet. So we have an equipment closet where we provide equipment that goes freely out into the community. So we provide equipment that Medicare typically does not fund. We provide grab bars. We provide three-in-one commodes. 
um, sometimes even if Medicare does does provide a three in one commode, it's not maybe not sufficient. We provide tub equipment, bathroom equipment that Medicare doesn't provide. We provide um, rollator walkers, and we provide sometimes even wheelchairs for individuals because they just can't afford them. Even if with the copays, you give somebody a copay, they can't afford the copay. Where we provide that free of charge. And then we are local agencies. We partner with agencies to get those things installed for individuals. So from equipment to installation, it costs nothing for the homeowner. We also um, partner with um, people who are renting, partner with landlords to get those things installed for people who are renting as well. So you have to think about all the things around those individuals. Um, Some people don't own their homes. Um, And so that's something that we work with landlords on a pretty continual basis. The other thing we thought about was locating clinics within either walkable distance or um, on transportation. And so all of our clinics, when we do clinics or when we do falls and balance classes, we offer virtual options. We also offer classes located in the community. We're just concluding a class in the community right now, an Otago class that's been located in one of the housing communities in the East Winston area. We had actually people coming to that class over a 12-week period. That was organized with one of our um, community leaders. And one of our community leaders actually went out and canvassed the neighborhood for us. And she's been coming and pulling people into that class every week. Kind of when we thought about this project and kind of going back to the grants aspect, we thought about what we would need to fund this. So things that we asked for funding were additional staff. We asked for direct client support. So direct client support, meaning equipment direct client support, meaning funding for renovations, funding for community partners, people that we're going to partner with. One of the nice and cool benefits that we found is that we've had people um, since the initiation of the grant that have been able to age in their home until they passed away. And that's, that's successful aging in place. Whereas people, and I'll just give you a client story because that's always neat. Um, we had one um, client who called us because every time it would rain, it would rain onto her bed. She was a double amputee and um, she was operating at wheelchair level. And she called us because her house was not accessible to her. She was having difficulty um, doing dishes, cooking in her home and accessing the features of her home just because of the situation that she had in her home. When we got into her home, we also figured out the whole back wall of her home was rotten was going to have a major problem in the back of her home. So um, the roof was replaced. The raccoons were escorted out of her out of her attic. The back wall of her home was replaced. Her sinks were put at a height where she could reach her sink to do dishes. She could cook. Her bathrooms were modified where she could transfer. And she was able to um, live in her home until she passed away. I would say that that's a pretty successful story that we had. And um, we just actually, another successful story that we had is we had a patient who we I kind of did some anticipatory needs for her and put some grab bars into her home. She called me about three weeks ago and she said, you won't believe it. I told you I didn't need those grab bars, but I would still be stuck in my tub had you not put those grab bars in. So, you know, just kind of also anticipating um, needs before they actually happen is some of the things we also do for our residents in the community. And we also involve students in doing some of these home assessments when they have time 
um, just so they get practice because I, that was one thing I never got to do as a student. I never got to go out in the home and look at a home and say, okay, what does this patient need? That was something I had to do as a geriatric specialist and a geriatric therapist is look at somebody's home and go, okay, what do they need? And um, anticipate those needs before they actually occurred. And so, you know, I think kind of coming at it from a preventative standpoint, not just an urgent needs standpoint is something that I've been appreciative of having these grants have been able to do. And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference, and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't get that opportunity in school. I didn't uh, know how to do a home assessment until I was a home health therapist. And then at that point, it was like, oh, okay, new problems. We got to start solving them, you know? Uh, so I, I totally get that. I love the uh, incorporation of Otago in in your, your program. Can you kind of walk us through the student side of things? Like you said, they start right at, at you know, trim, uh, semester two. What does it look like then for a student going through the program? What is this program set up to, to do to kind of show how the students can pro progress through it and learn? So they start semester two in our pro bono clinic and community care center at Foresight. And they start just with the things that they know how to do, which is goniometry and talking to patients. So um, we don't, they are mentored by a second or a third year student. So we don't send them in by themselves. That's one of the ways we fill our CAPTI, fulfill our CAPTI obligation that students act with CI so that they are mentored by a second or third year student. And then in third semester, they are required to do some reflective exercises as part of their community care clinic class, which is also their psychosocial class. They take a little bit more of active role as they start their musculoskeletal series and the musculoskeletal components. So they start upper quarter. So they start doing some basic evaluative procedures. And as they proceed through their musculoskeletal curriculum, um, second year, they become a little bit more independent and they start mentoring about third semester of their second year. Third semester of their second year, they start neuro and then they start their, um, they get, everybody in our program gets trained as an Otago coach. So everybody gets trained. Um, so they become Otago certified in that, in their neuro curriculum. And they also get assigned to coach someone in Otago, um, either in their geriatric class, which is their eighth semester, or they get assigned during their neuro curriculum. Um, during that neuro semester, they're involved in two pro bono clinics. So they're involved in both 
the outpatient ortho clinic and also an outpatient neuro clinic. So a Monday and a Wednesday clinic, they rotate through those clinics. So not everybody is there every week, but they do get to rotate through and they're involved through semester eight um, before they go out on their final terminal rotation. So they spend six um, semesters engaged in the service-based learning through our pro bono clinics. I love that because again, it's just adding more experiential learning. And and the big thing, even like you talked about at the very second semester, early on, yeah, they might not be able to do too much, right? But vital signs, goniometry. And like you said, I think the big one is just talking to patients, you know, the soft skills, being able to hold a conversation, being able to kind of read the patient a little bit and see what they're, you know, they're going through. How are they feeling? What are their emotions? You know, like, what do they have to navigate? How can they get them to buy in and open up about what they're what they're experiencing? You know, I think that experience to me is is so amazing because it really builds the foundation for when they do go out on their clinical. You know, we can do simulations all day long, but really getting out there and in the community and and getting to interact with patients to me seems like, you know, one of the biggest takeaways from this whole program for for those students. Right. And and they have a good opportunity in our um in our community care center of foresight because 80% of our of our patients are Spanish speaking. So they have a really good opportunity to start learning house or two, how to work through an interpreter or how to work through with somebody who is speaking a totally different language than they speak. So they get some skills around on working with an interpreter. So maybe the first time that they work with an interpreter is not on their clinical rotation. The first time they probably work with an interpreter is second semester of their matriculation in the PT program. So students have consistently come back to us and said, you know, that's really valuable that we the first time I had to work with an interpreter was not the first time I entered out on my clinical rotation. And I had some skills around that. And I knew, I knew how to work with an interpreter. You know, I knew how to work with a patient who may not speak the language that I speak. And I knew how, what, how to get the information that I need, even when the patient didn't speak the language that I was speaking. So I think that, you know, some of those skills that we, we want to teach our students, right? We want to teach students how to be more culturally competent and how to be linguistically competent and how to consider what is happening with the patient is really important. Like, for example, I had a patient today telling me of the herbal remedy she was using to help her arthritis pain. And I was telling the students, hey, she's using herbal remedies to help her arthritis pain. And they were acknowledging it and saying, what effect do you think that that happened for you? And, you know, they were acknowledging to her, you know, that was important for us to know. And, you know, it was really, I think the valuing of the patient experience becomes richer because they know they have these experiences early and they have them often um, within our program. Yeah. I mean, just so invaluable. I mean, things you don't even think about, like you said, the interpreter, we talk about how, Hey, you're going to, you know, encounter interpreters throughout your career and you're going to have people that don't speak your language. And, you know, many hospital systems have good interpreter programs. Uh, Some don't, Uh, you know, it's, it's different for every setting. So you just have to kind of be aware and you have to know how to navigate those situations. So it's, it's amazing that they get that opportunity. What would you say to somebody who maybe was in that 50% that was not using service-based learning at their program, if they wanted to start doing something service-based and they wanted to, you know, have a win-win for their students, their university, and for the community, how would you uh, recommend they get started? 
So I would say let's start with small achievable goals. You may start with a one-off or a once per semester. You have to prioritize it because if you don't, just like anything else in the PT curriculum, if you don't put it in, it's not going to happen. We have student champions for some of our events that we do around service learning. And that has helped us too, because we have a share of the health fair that we do with our medical school um, at Wake Forest. We have student champions that help us organize that event. So I think that some of the things don't always have to be faculty driven. And I think some of it can be student led. So we, in conjunction with what I do as a faculty leader of our pro bono clinic, we have student graduate assistants that help us lead our pro bono clinic. And they help us with some of our scheduling of students. And they help us with um, making sure that students get where they need to be on the schedule and that we make sure we have faculty scheduled. So they actually tell me where to go and where to, what to do. It's fine. I, I mean, that's part of their role. So I think, you know, they're getting some also administrative experience and making sure that, you know, hey, let's make sure that Dr. Smith knows that she needs to be in clinic on this day. I think that that is something that is a strategy that's worked very well for us in making sure that we organize some of these events. I think the other thing is that we also built it into our schedule. So as we're doing our class schedule, we make sure we block time for these things. So we hold it. It's pretty much blocked out. Wednesday mornings are not allowed to be scheduled. So Wednesday mornings are clinic. We not we are not allowed to schedule anything over clinic. Um, same thing for Monday afternoons. We're not allowed to schedule anything on Monday afternoons. So I think for a program who's considering moving into service learning, you've got to think about what time you put in for it. But I think the thing is, is like when we went through our period when we did when we had all these clinic cancellations for um, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Fortunately, we were able to count some of that clinic time because we had recorded it. We knew exactly how much time students had spent. We were able to substitute in two weeks of clinic time for their COVID, for missing for COVID. That allowed our students to meet their requirements for CAFTI and graduate. And so I think, you know, when thinking about kind of like, okay, what benefit is this going to have for our students? We constantly get on CPI, our first entering students are operating at higher levels than typical first entering students. And that's because we've spent time with them in the clinic working on some of their skills and help them with some of the things that they need to practice, like their interview skills and some of their documentation skills. So we've practiced some of that, that before they even matriculate on their first clinical. And I think that that's important. So I think, you know, as programs think about what the benefits are, Yes, it takes time and yes, it takes effort. and Yes, it, it takes some faculty member concentration. And But I think the benefits of it to students and also to the community are, are immeasurable. And I think that, you know, when when programs are, are thinking about how to embark on something, it's 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 got to be kind of that it's got to be something that's intentional. And um, all of like I said, all of these things are done with intentionality. And for our students, because we we saw we've seen gaps and before we had pro bono clinics and before we had more clinical, we saw gaps in their clinical skills. And we're not seeing those gaps now Um, and we're not seeing them having difficulty put together. And as one of my students said today to me, it's working with them in the clinic today. You know what, Dr. Smith? 
I'm getting a good orthopedics review because every time I've been here, I've seen a different orthopedic condition and I've seen a patient last the three different patients. I've seen a patient with hip problem, patient with a lumbar spine problem. And today I'm seeing a patient with a shoulder problem. And I've seen three different orthopedic problems and I've gotten a good musculoskeletal review prior to my clinical. So I think, you know, that tells me something too, because the students are saying I'm seeing benefit from coming. Well, um, how amazing is it to step up on your first day of clinical and not having it be your first day putting hands on a patient? I mean, that's just, again, invaluable. You don't, you don't even think about that. And I think it takes some of the anxiety um, down around stepping into the clinic. I had somebody today look at me and said, I don't remember how to measure the goniometric measurements. And I said, well, that sounds like a great opportunity to go practice that before you go in on your clinical. And, and she's like, She's like, I hope this is a no judgment zone. I said, this is a no judgment zone. I'm going to tell you how to do it, but I'm also going to tell you, you need to go practice. It also helps students um, do some self-reflection and reflect on the things that they might not know as well before they hit the clinic so that we don't get those calls from clinical instructors. Like, I can't believe this student didn't know how to do their goniometric measurements. And, you know, the student before this didn't, they had an acute care clinical, so they didn't do goniometry. They haven't done it in a little bit. So they had to go back and review it. So I said, you know, before you go out in this next clinical, you really do need to go back and review your goniometric measurements if you're not that certain about how to do them anymore. And so it's helping them also spot gaps where they need to go back and fill things back in. Yeah. Just general self-awareness, you know, and knowing that it's okay to not know. And, and this is the time to practice and make mistakes so that when we do go out into the real world, whether it be clinical or eventual jobs, uh, we can get it right more of the time and, and spot more of the patterns and, and make the right decisions. It, it becomes a safe space for them. Yeah. yeah. And it, you know, it, it becomes, you know, they're mentored by faculty and they're, you know, most of them are pretty comfortable with us and, you know, so that they, they feel like, okay, I may not know this, but I've got somebody here backing me up too. And so I think from, from that perspective, you know, we, we set, talk about service, they are doing service and they are treating a patient in front of them and they are providing something to that patient to help that patient feel better and to get better. But they're also learning, they're learning physical, how to provide physical therapy care to a patient. You know, that was something that we always emphasize, you know, you're here to learn and you may not be perfect and that's okay. And we're here also to help you figure things out. And if you can't figure it out, we're also help here to help you figure things out. Yeah. So, you know, it becomes a place where they can learn. And I, I tell them all the time that it's the best pace, place to review for it, for an exam prior to their musculoskeletal, whether it's in their musculoskeletal, I'm like this is the best place to come before your musculoskeletal exam, because you're going to see patients with musculoskeletal problems. It's always funny when they always walk out, you know, like, my test is on the shoulder tomorrow and I had a patient with a shoulder problem. I'm like, exactly. The universe provides, you know, it's yes, funny because exactly. it, it really, to me, it brings home the 30,000 foot view, right? The, the holistic picture of the patient, not just test question on shoulder, test question on shoulder, test question on shoulder. It kind of gets them out of that tunnel vision a little bit and reminds them why they're here and what they're aiming toward and what their eventual goal is. Right. So it's just, right. again, it's a win-win-win to me for, you know, service-based learning. They're doing community service and pro bono work. They're learning, you know, and the community's winning from it too, because they're getting services that may not otherwise be available. 
Right. And just kind of a reflection from our community partners, because I sit on our, our board at the community care center is, you know, the reflection from them is that when they go up for competitive applications, it helps them. The services that they provide, the services that we provide, it helps them demonstrate that they're serving a broader segment of the community and that they're capturing you know, more conditions and that they're serving and how much service that they're providing. So it basically helps them extend their reach too. And it helps them when they are compiling reports and grant reports to say, hey, we not only have services that have been funded by this grant, but we've been able to provide in-kind services from Winston-Salem State. Here's the services and here's the dollar amount of services and here's the amount of CPT we've been able to provide from Winston-Salem State. From that perspective, it helps, you know, our community partners reflect back to us that it's beneficial to them from being able to be competitive for, from them to receive funding dollars. And it helps them to be able to basically help their patients more effectively. So, you know, their patients aren't showing up to the ER because of musculoskeletal conditions. They aren't showing up to the ER because they have back pain. They're showing up to us because they have back pain. And and we actually do sometimes even practice in a direct access model because sometimes they don't even send the patient to the physician that they the patient calls with back pain and they just schedule them for PT. You know, we're we're getting even direct access referral when patients are calling. And um, so we're getting, our receptionists are even just saying, hey, just go to PT, like just, just head there and not even scheduling them with a primary physician first. Yeah, it's, it's pretty nice when it all works out like that, you know? Well, Nancy, thank you so much for your time and your expertise on this stuff. Like I said, I I love geeking out about this. I could listen to this all day, but we have one final question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? I think I would change the process of sitting in seats. And why I say that is I think I would change how people receive their education so that education is more efficient and brings more of the clinic into the classroom. And I think I would change that um, we don't necessarily need more seat time to teach students. One of the things that I'm pretty passionate about is how can we teach students in ways that doesn't necessarily require them to be in a classroom but helps us helps them to learn about the profession and helps them to grow as a practitioner from um, not only a hands-on psychomotor skill perspective, but helps them grow from a social to into a socially responsive and responsible practitioner. And so that's what I would change. I would change what we do as a profession. And the other thing I would change would be how we teach people how to think about problems and how we think about the systems that surround problems. So we had a problem in our local community about people being prematurely institutionalized. So thinking about the systems that were influencing that has been impactful for us and thinking about how we change that system and how we reduce people being prematurely institutionalized. And so I think people need to think about how we change the systems of education so that it meets the needs of our learners 
customers and so that it promotes our profession in growing and makes our profession sustainable in the long run. I love that. Yeah, that's a great take. Again, get out of the classroom more, more experiential learning. And I'm biased, obviously, you know, having my dissertation on service-based learning, but at the same time, it makes sense, I think. I think it's a perfect fit for physical therapy. Uh, well, where can people reach out to you and follow up with you if they have more questions or they just want to see what you're up to and, and learn more about what you're working on these days? So I'm on LinkedIn, so they can reach out to me on my LinkedIn profile, or um, I'm on Twitter at Nance765 and Nancy765. Or you can also email me at sniffna at wssu.edu. Excellent. We'll put all those links in the show notes so that it's easy for people to find you. Nancy, again, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Well, I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.